For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we started talking about these early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and in particular, Jesus' message of radical inclusion. His presence without judgment among some of the most objectionable people of his day. Today, that radical acceptance meets the radical demands of Jesus' way of life, one he calls us to follow, and does so with some hard sayings. The story that we heard this morning includes the famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Many of us recognize those words as belonging to Abraham Lincoln. He said it in 1858. It was part of an acceptance speech for the Republican nomination for president. Lincoln had just emerged as the winner of the now famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. It was a reference, of course, to slavery and Lincoln's belief that the United States could not continue to be half slave and half free. We could not stand to go on being a divided house. It's tempting to enjoy Lincoln's flowery rhetoric and forget that his message was radical and risky. Lincoln had not yet been elected president. He had miles to go before the Emancipation Proclamation or the turning of the tide in the Civil War. And yet he was willing to name what needed to be named at great personal risk and cost. Statements like this would one day cost him his life. Lincoln hoped to do the hard work of preserving the Union, but before that ever happened, many houses would be divided in their response to his message. Our country's history is full of stories of houses divided, not just houses of government, but the houses of our families. None of us remember Lincoln personally, but I'm sure many of you remember your own family or others you knew divided over the Civil Rights Movement or the Vietnam War. I talk with you all frequently about similar divisions that exist today. Just this week, I was talking with someone who has two adult daughters, both of them politically active. One of them directs a network of pro-Trump supporters. The other has moved out of the country, fearing reprisal for her political activism. I wonder what those sisters would say about this phrase, a house divided against itself cannot stand. As you heard in today's scripture lesson, the words don't belong to Abraham Lincoln. Like many things that Lincoln said, the words come from the Bible. And in this case, they are words of Jesus. I introduced the words in the way that I did so that we will remember that Jesus' message is meant to be radical. Jesus said a lot of political things. 
He was frequently at odds with the powerful. He spoke out against practices that oppressed the weak. He almost always showed a preferential bias toward people who were poor. Jesus always seems to be using his own life to show the lengths to which we should go to do God's will in the world. It is often a way that opposes comfort and convention and the powers that be, things the way they are. It is a way of life that is threatening to many. So if we wish to follow Jesus, we should prepare to struggle with divided houses and even with our own divided hearts. The story from today describes what this is like in terms that we can understand. It's set within a disagreement between Jesus and other people in his family. In the story, we find Jesus in a house eating supper at the close of the day. His ministry, his his teaching, and his way of living have gained so much notoriety that the crowds have become overbearing. And we read that it was difficult for Jesus and his disciples to find just a few minutes to eat. As the crowds surround the house, we learn something about Jesus' family. We hear a story that is quite relatable and probably familiar to many of you. As Jesus' fame grew, as he grew up and he followed his passions as a young man, it seems that his family began pleading with him to stop it and to just come on home. They were afraid for him. Or they were embarrassed for themselves. In the stories we've read these past several weeks, we know that Jesus was in danger. We are told so many times. His statements and actions were angering people in positions of religious or political power. People had started speaking up against him, plotting to put him to death. The threats arose because Jesus made people uncomfortable. We know that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners, and besides them, that Jesus spent much of his time with people on the margins, the people that other folks had forgotten. He did not spend much time with comfortable people. Had the supper in today's story happened in our own time, that house would certainly have been filled with poor people and people who lived on the street. There might have been soldiers with missing limbs or post-traumatic stress disorder, Syrian children with severe burns on their bodies, refugee families new to Cincinnati who speak no English, recovering addicts smelling of cheap coffee and too many cigarettes. These were Jesus' companions. Now remember... Jesus had received perfectly good training as the son of a carpenter. He is the equivalent of a young graduate who would rather go protest and volunteer than put his business degree to work. 
He just keeps spending all of his time with these needy people. And his mother and his brothers do not get it. He is in danger. He is embarrassing them. And in their frustration, they knock at the door and they ask, Who are these people you are with, Jesus? Can't you just come on home and get a job? Jesus is doing the right things here. Out of a place of self-sacrifice, he is caring for people who no one else bothers to care about. But it sounds like his family might have preferred for him a life that was less risky or controversial, one that provided a reliable income and that aligned more neatly with their expectations. This is the great and obvious point of Jesus' life, the one that we so often choose to ignore. Jesus calls for no less than radical transformation in our lives and in the world, but Jesus' family wanted him to just stay home and be a carpenter. And the fact is, Many of us would prefer the same thing. It would be so much easier to follow Jesus if his demands were less demanding. If Jesus had been less radical, following him would be much easier. The problem is that it wouldn't have made for much of a religious movement. Can you imagine if Dr. King, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, can you imagine if when their radical work had started to attract attention, they just went on home? People didn't follow them because they were conventional. We find them inspirational because they were radical. Jesus is so radical, he isn't just attracting the disapproval of his family, everyone is noticing. Jesus is in this house trying to eat some dinner with the crowd pressing in outside. Some experts in the religious law are standing nearby watching this take place. They have the same reaction as everyone else. He's making them uncomfortable too. They don't like his radical message or behavior. So they hear the pleas of his family, and they exploit the situation. They claim that his deeds of power and his popular following are the work of a demon. Only Satan could be responsible for the actions that treat one's own family so poorly. And they point out that Jesus is inside doing the devil's work with all the riffraff of the world while the family he neglects waits outside. Here the real genius of Jesus' response comes through. For his reaction is precisely the opposite of what is usually said about it. 
Many readers assume that Jesus is being dismissive of his mother and his brothers. What he is really doing expresses a much deeper love for them. Jesus' love is so deep, so broad, so high, that the affection most of us feel only for our own flesh and blood, Jesus feels for everyone. The affection most of us would only offer to our own children, Jesus offers to criminals. Surrounding himself with people who have contagious diseases, he holds them the way we only hold our own babies. He wants everyone he meets, regardless of their background, their challenges, the rejections they've felt everywhere else in life, he wants them all to feel the love of God. That is his message. Far from not loving his own family, who want him to come home and live the conventional life of a carpenter, he resists their complacency so that they too will see that God's love stretches beyond flesh and blood, that God's love reaches everyone. God's love is not just for our own children, but for all of God's children. One of you recently took me to uh, the annual breakfast for ProKids, an amazing organization in our city that helps children who are victims of abuse and neglect. We've all been hearing about the heroin and prescription drug epidemic that is so severe in our region. Did you know that the epidemic is causing the number of abused and neglected children in our region to skyrocket? There are not enough people to take care of them. They need foster families, court-appointed special advocates, people who are willing to work with their broken parents, sometimes when they want to change and other times when they're not ready. People who will adopt the children when their parents disappear for good or turn up dead. Our church sponsors many organizations that help these children. That's good. But the people who know these children by their names and love them like their own are doing the radical work of Jesus. There's a tension in this Bible story that I am unable to ignore. If Jesus is so radically demanding, how can he still be as radically inclusive as I made him out to be just two weeks ago? If he is eating with criminals and sinners of the highest order, fine, but am I causing that problem? What's wrong with my complacent lifestyle of caring for my own family and paying my own bills? Why do the worst sinners get the grace of God while the rest of us get a challenge that it seems impossible to begin? The 
The only way I've been able to make sense of that begins with another one of our presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, and a speech he gave in Paris in 1910. You might have heard this before. Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. The Christ-like quality I find in that message is articulated beautifully by Brene Brown in her book called Daring Greatly. What Roosevelt is describing is not just strength, it is vulnerability. The willingness to try something you've not mastered and at which you may fail. Vulnerability, she says, is not just knowing victory or defeat. It is understanding the necessity of both. It is engaging. It is being all in. When we spend our lives, she says, waiting until we are perfect before we walk into the arena, we ultimately sacrifice relationships and opportunities that may not be recoverable. We squander our precious time, and we turn our back on our gifts, those unique contributions only we can make. We must walk into the arena, whatever it may be. A new relationship, an important meeting, our creative process, a difficult family conversation. I would add the deeply flawed systems that keep our neighbors hungry and impoverished. We must walk into these challenges, she says, with courage and the willingness to engage. Rather than sitting on the sidelines and hurling judgment and advice, we must dare to show up and allow ourselves to be seen. Jesus' ancient family and we, his family that lives today, we are tempted to come to the door of places where Jesus or someone like him are doing the hardest work of caring for people in the world, people who need love. We are tempted to come all the way to the door and then say from the outside, Jesus, would you just come home and be a carpenter? Jesus, would you ask me for something less radical because I don't want to do what you're doing? We 
We are tempted to hurl insults and criticisms at Jesus about whether or not it's fair. If you can forgive the tax collectors, how come what I'm doing isn't good enough? Haven't you ever thought about that, Jesus, huh? We know the problem with these critiques. There's a yearning in our hearts. This deep knowledge that there is pain in the world and maybe we could do something about it if we just tried. There's a seed inside of us, inside our very own lives, that we could do something more, an itch we need to scratch, the sneaking suspicion that our deepest longings will never be fulfilled by staying at home and living the good life. The grace we receive from Christ is that we don't need to be perfect to step into that arena. We just need to try showing up at the door of the house where Jesus is and instead of asking him to come back home and be safe, we need to stand there And say to Jesus, I am here, Jesus. I am not perfect. I too am a sinner like those people inside with you. I want my life to be changed because of knowing you. What should I do first?